I really believe you've hit on something that is crucial, Evan, and part of that uh, reality has to do with, as we take our own selves less seriously, there is somehow a mysterious measure of grace that starts growing in us for other people. I've learned so much over this first year of podcasting, and I wanted to share with you guys the 10 most life-changing lessons that I've learned this year. So I created a document, and it's on my website. What you're going to do, you're going to go there. It's going to be 10 life-changing lessons. Click on that button. It'll ask for your email address so I can email it to you. Sign up for it, because these life lessons radically changed the way I viewed my life and the way I started living. It helped me to get better in the areas that I've so desperately wanted to see progress and growth in. And because I know they helped me, I really believe that they will help you. And I wanted this to be a gift for you guys. So I really hope you enjoy this gift and go to the website, thewholepersonpodcast.com to get it. It's free. And I hope you guys enjoy and learn as much as I did from it. So excited again to bring another episode to you guys. You're such an amazing audience. And I just want to say thank you for listening and journeying with me through the process of becoming a whole person in the areas of faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, and fun. You know, a while back we had one of the fathers of faith in my life on the show, and he's back again to talk about one of his other books called Giants in the Rough. And picture this. The cover is a lot of different colors of orange with an African setting of a hut and an African tree and Mount Kilimanjaro in the back. And today we're going to be talking to Jerry about another aspect and season of his life regarding the memoir of his book. And so Jerry, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Evan. Happy to be with you. So Jerry, I just want to say what, let me ask you about your book. Why did you decide to write another follow-up book of a memoir, Giants in the Rough? Well, largely my whole journey of writing has to do with uh, kind of call it three audiences. And this sort of evolved down through time as I looked at the whole craft of writing. And one of those audiences is primarily my offspring and their spouses going forward in generations to come, hopefully that there will be something of call it legacy, but something that will characterize uh, the lives of my wife and myself uh, and how, how the Lord has been involved in the progression of our journey. And then another group of people that we hope these, uh, writings will impact in a positive way are those who are just simply on, on the journey who could use some encouragement along the way. So the books typically are threaded with some humor, personal uh, accounts of experiences that we people go through life. Uh, all people go through life in some of these instances with different kinds of characteristics, these ways. And then also Christian ministry. And then other people who just could use a little bit of hopefully some light on the pathway to bring them forward 
into a closer trust and knowledge of who Jesus is. So your book, Giants in the Rough, it, it's about people that in your journey, in your story, were essentially diamonds, gold, that people helped you in the development, people that you've learned from. And before I, you know, we get too far into that, if, you know, you didn't hear the last episode that Jerry was on, you, you and your wife were absolutely our giants in, in a portion and a part in our life that, that we look at, that your influence helped us, your love, your encouragement, your support. And so I just not only want to say thank you for that, but I just, I, I love the fact that you're talking about wanting to leave a legacy in your children and grandchildren's life. But I want you to also know, I mean, even as a missionary and other aspects, man, you've, you've left an impact in my family. And you know, you're here at my house as we're recording this. You know, this house could have been located in a different state, not around family, probably wouldn't be this big, but I'm surrounded by family. I'm surrounded by love. Our roots have grown deep. And a lot of that is to the wisdom that your wife and you gave my wife and I to, to come home, that pursuing a different avenue of ministry after one didn't work out is not failure, but to come home to heal and to see what God has for the next season. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. What a ple pleasure, and uh, thank you, Evan. Uh, what a pleasure for Ann and me, and certainly as we look back through the years to see how God has and is continuing to lead, direct, use your paths in his good, good kingdom. These podcasts, I so encourage, um, champion, vouch for anyone who would take time to just tap into these they are they are rich what i have seen and heard through this good uh launching of this uh medium well so thank, thank you. you for that i appreciate that so let's dive into your book what there's a lot of life lessons that you've gone through what are some one or two lessons in this book that really meant the most to you yeah, you're right. There are several. When you're young missionaries going out to a foreign place like the continent of Africa, which is the case for my wife, Anne, and myself back in 1972, some of, the, some of the things that we began to discover and learn along the way as wet behind the ears, uh, missionary wannabes, you might call us, was the the breadth and the depth, the richness of people, people of all colors and nationalities and tribal language and ethnicities, people who are unsung heroes, we would call them. So we use the word giants, giants in the rough, kind of like diamonds in the rough. Uh, one of the lessons that was important for me to learn as a young missionary was to not take myself too seriously. And I still, I still have opportunities to revisit the need for that. But 
learning to laugh at ourselves, laugh along with others about humanity. Um, I remember one instance when we had lived in Tanzania. My wife and I lived in Kenya and served in Kenya for 15 years and then later moved to the country just south of Kenya, Tanzania. We're there for five years. About three years into our time in Tanzania, a young pastor friend came by the house and we were drinking tea, hot tea, and having a conversation. And, and so the pastor's name was Unity. And, uh, and I said, so Unity, what does this mean in your uh, culture? Because I had told him that it just means a relaxed position informally when you're having a conversation with someone. So Unity, what does it mean in your culture? And he smiled and said, Actually, when a person positions in the, themselves that way in any group of people, they're conveying to everyone in the room, I am bored with the present company that I'm with. And so my immediate thought was retracing all of the conversations that I've had over the last three years in all kinds of settings, drinking tea and otherwise with faster leaders, different ones. I How laugh. many times did I have that only, only because, sorry, I laugh only because having done missions before, you learn things that you did later, like Jerry's saying, oh no, this is culturally insensitive. <laughs> exactly. And part of that is discovering, thankfully, that most cultures of the world are very forgiving, very forgiving, and they laugh with you, sometimes laughing at you, but you learn to laugh at yourself. Right. Oh, man. That, that's really funny. <laughs> so what other stories or moments in your life that, you've just had to learn to laugh at yourself versus be upset or angry. Yeah. Well, if you'll allow me, let me, let me read just a little portion out of the book here. And it alludes to something that my wife and I were very, very anxious for a little while. And then, then we came to realize we needed to take, circumstances not so seriously as well in some cases. So we're lying in bed at night. We're in our first assignment in a very remote area of southwestern Kenya. And it's dark and my eyes pop open and I say to my wife, do you hear something, hon? The drum sounds reached our ears, distant and eerie more dreamlike than real. Indeed, I thought at first the rhythmic thumping was a dream, but as the drumming, joined now by human voices, grew in volume, our feelings of unease heightened. As young missionaries freshly assigned to our new posting, we lay still wide-eyed in our pitch-dark bedroom within this remote mission house, our breathing shallowed. They're coming closer. Taramanya, occupied a tiny dot on the rare Kenya map that would count the outpost worthy of any mention at all. The village's calling card included a butcher shop. Flies gathered to hike over slabs of beef suspended on iron hooks well before the time customers savored the meat. 
we learned how the pressure cooker claimed a prized spot in the home of any self-respecting missionary. Along the bend in the village road, two schools bookended the butchery, one for elementary kids, the other serving high schoolers. Our mission station home lay steps away from the butcher shop. The station rested on the uppermost slope of a gradually ascending hill. Its entrance point marked the head of a sweeping curve on the narrow unpaved road passing in front. Our new lodging lay in a remote sector of Kenya just five miles north of Tanzania's unpatrolled border. The glistening waters of Lake Victoria rested 40 miles to our west. We newbie missionaries with little orientation about our new setting had just moved hundreds of miles to the Korea mission. We had no history with any person of the Korea tribe. The drumming and the voices drew nearer. Chanting sounds in a local dialect unknown to us increased the angst. Had we pondered more the impact of faith since the gospel's arrival a couple decades earlier, our jittery nerves would have stirred less. The night of fitful sleep finally passed. Next morning, we asked the obvious question as the midnight drum beats and chanting voices called up old film images of painted warriors, pith helmets, and boiling pots. Embarrassed chuckles came once we traced our Saturday night insomnia to a small band of local tribal believers on their way to a prayer meeting. <laughs> so the moment that you realize that what you were fearing was nothing to be scared about. Yeah, it kind of had a way of diffusing all that pent-up anxiety. So You yeah. know, as you're talking about this lesson of laughing at yourself, when I look back at my life, I look at moments of frustration or anger, whether it's dealing with family issues or uh, work, instead of just laughing at the situation, it's really easy to get angry or upset, which causes frustration or anger, which ultimately leads to some sort of action that is not typically good for the situation. And as I'm getting older and with the things that you're saying, am I understanding it correctly that, you know, if we can approach life with a little less seriousness per situation and just regardless of how frustrating it is or the moment, just to take a step back and even laugh at it, that life will feel a little bit more happier because we're learning to laugh at difficult situations. I really believe you've hit on something that is crucial, Evan, and part of that uh, reality has to do with, as we take our own selves less seriously, there's somehow a mysterious measure of grace that starts growing in us for other people because we take them for who they are more easily rather than who we expect maybe we think they ought to be or how they should perform. Um, and we realize that all of us are in this ocean called humanity with our foibles, our very different personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses, 
we contrast one another, we complement one another. One missionary wife, uh, another young couple that we were contemporary with in East Africa said this, he who laughs, lasts. So those who take life, you know, seriously as it appropriately ought to be, while at the same time not be not being overly concerned with crossing every T, dotting every I in a matter that makes us appear as though we've got it all together. There's something very disarming and very healthy, I believe, about um, living in reality. You know, you being a missionary, you you understand this term African time. And for those of you who haven't traveled to Africa or have um, friends directly from Africa, there's a stigma that African time typically will run several hours behind the intended, the intended target time. And so in my time in Africa, which is very small, maybe in total a month and a half, one of the things that I've learned from that experience was that I had no control over almost any situation that I was in. Here in America, for whatever reason, I feel like I have more control over my situation, more control over my circumstances, more control over what happens in my home, which typically means that I'm trying to control other people. And that's where I feel like I get into trouble when I try to control the situation or people in my life for specific results or because it makes me feel a little bit better or comforted. And that's an issue that I have, a real issue. Not that I'm an overbearing dominant individual. However, in my life, I realize like my son will do something and then I'll get really frustrated really quick. And then like, I look at him and he's just laughing away and I'm just like, okay, I, I need to swallow a big chill pill right now. Would you say, go, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, yeah, uh, there's a, a favorite. I'm old enough now that I can say things like uh, my current favorite, all-time favorite author is, and for me right now, uh, one of my favorites is Dallas Willard and a bit of a trail off on this concept about control is those of us particularly who are in whether vocational ministry, gospel ministry, or an informal kind of ministry, but nonetheless as valuable and viable. Um, Dallas Willard makes a statement. This may be a paraphrase, but this is his statement. You are never called upon to make something happen. And there's something about this control freak part of many of us that a lot of that was conditioned in us through our religious Christian upbringing, maybe in the church context where we were at, and helped form us so that we assumed that we needed to really have the act together and also get things done the right way and the best way. And there's some really appropriate 
things to do with conscientious living out our lives and our service. But where that plays over into being that person who needs to ensure that all things are working very, very well and efficiently and perfectly, we start realizing, oh, I'm maybe substituting myself for the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I need to back off of assuming that I'm in charge of anything. And again, taking myself less seriously and also um, entrusting to him outcomes. When I was in Africa, one of the things that I realized is I needed Africa far more than it needed me. And for any of you guys that are listening, I just want to encourage you in this one thing. I, I've really enjoyed traveling outside of the United States. And there's a difference between a vacation outside the United States and a mission trip outside the United States. I would highly encourage you guys to go to a third world and do a mission trip of some sort because there is so much learning and growth that will happen in you as a person through that process. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, so Jerry, in this book, there's some people that you referenced that were extremely important. Would you share with me one of those people and, and the influence that they left on your life? Sure. Well, maybe with your permission, I might read just another little excerpt from the book. Absolutely. So chapter 32 in Giants in the Rough uh, begins with Nomad Stirring is the name of the title. When the Simba came at me, I raised my shield, but then he knocked me back. The young African opened his palm, extending it my way. I surveyed the seasoned lion claw scar running near his thumb and forefinger. My brothers then speared him. The tall, lean Maasai named Gadiol recounted his lion hunting venture, a tribal rite initiated, initiating one to warrior status. His voice was calm, undramatic, as if he were relating details of a routine walk to the local market. Gadiol and Karabali was now a warmly regarded Christian pastor among his nomadic cattle-tending kin. His gospel work came about in large part because of a lady named Eva. Eva met us at the airport when we first arrived in Kenya in May of 1972. A single missionary mother, her two children schooling at Rift Valley Academy, Eva had come to Kenya in the 1960s. They settled in a dusty remote outpost called Mashuru. Her first house, put up in less than two days, was a homemade tin structure covering 209 square feet. Once erected, she and a local co-worker lady settled down for the night. In her memoir, In the Shadow of Kilimanjaro, Eva relates her next morning surprise. All around the car, were large pad tracks where a lion had inspected it. Well, what you don't see doesn't hurt you. I, it excited us, but we weren't really troubled. We knew what country we were in, so 
went on fixing our little house. Along the way, the gutsy pioneer missionary lady came across a young tribal warrior, Gadio. I had asked some young Marani warriors if any would like to go for more schooling. The school in Eva's thinking was Kaimosi Bible College off to the west. None of these young men were Christ followers. Up went a hand, Nanu, he said in Maasai, I wish to. His name was Gadio, the chief of his manyata household. Years later, the cattle herder turned Christian shepherd recounted his first days in Bible college. I saw many miracles God showed me. One night I prayed so much, asking Jesus to see his face. That very night there came a man in my dream in a great light. I woke up shaking. A song came into my heart. I am sure Jesus was doing something in me. This man became a, a man of deep, deep devotion and prayer and highly regarded, greatly respected and honored uh, overseer and leader of numerous churches throughout the remote regions of Kenya. So Gadio would be one of my giants. What was a lesson or two from watching him that you've learned? I would say his capacity for being unrattled, the capacity for steadiness, a deep sense of confidence and humility combined, which is kind of a rare blend a lot of times. Yeah, but I would think becoming a manhood by hunting lions would kind of instill that in you. <laughs> you think? <laughs> probably. The steadiness, the unwavering. That's right. So some of that would probably have been conditioned by his Marani upbringing. And uh, but I do feel that that went to an entirely different dimension, different right. level because of his prayer life. He had such a, a sense of deep confidence and awareness and peace in the Lord Jesus that shone through his eyes. How do we as a Christian believer or someone who's wanting to develop a more steadfast prayer life, what advice would you give someone like me? Maybe I should be on the receiving end of this question from you, uh, Evan. Uh, we're all on this journey. And I've, I've come in more recent times to feel that um, the, the older we grow, the more we are called upon to be childlike, because really that's who we are. Uh, in recent times, uh, I, I must confess that for much of my life, even as a minister, uh, as a guy who grew up in the church, much of my life, the Bible itself, in many times, has been more characterized as a set of platitudes. Um, something that because of familiarity, the preciousness, the tenderness, the aliveness of the scriptures and what they actually supply for us in terms of life-giving, radiant living, have become commonplace just due to familiarity. 
And so I would say learning to quiet ourselves in the presence of the Holy Scripture, taking a portion, a segment, and letting the Holy Spirit do what he may with no agenda that I need to see what this proof text might be or analyze it, but to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me through his scripture and then grow in learning how to obey and apply that to my life. I love that. Now, as you're sharing that, a couple things were welling up, I felt like. We live in such a world that's full of distractions. And one of the things that we have to do is eliminate those distractions. As you're talking about this man, you know, I just kind of saw this picture of Jesus where he retreated to the wilderness. He eliminated the possibility of distraction, Jesus did. And if we're going to settle down, if we're going to be quiet and want to be still in front of the Lord, there has to be a place where, where our attention is not being competed for. And then also, for us, it's really hard to be still because as Americans, we feel like we have to constantly be on the go and constantly do something in it and achieve something. But stillness, not only is it a spiritual, mental, emotional discipline, but it's a part of the relational aspect with God of just, and the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Mm. And even in the stillness and just knowing that it's God, that is enough. I think as people, when we pray, we're so conditioned to want to receive something or get something that in my life and why I struggle with this is because I feel like if I don't, not only have I wasted my time, but I did something wrong. And therefore I feel hurt or rejected. And to get over that hurt and rejection, I have to condition myself to think that prayer is not about receiving some new spiritual insight, but, but prayer or stillness is just about resting in God. Mm-hmm. Brennan Manning speaks about this little phrase as a prayer that simply says, Abba, I belong to you. And letting that marinate down inside of our soul. Again, like you're saying, Evan, in quietness, in solitude, laying aside the time crunches. One of my, uh, another giant kind of a guy served for many years in East Africa. He spoke of the first time that he served in this remote area of Africa. He was born and raised in New York City as a sort of stereotypical New York City, fast paced, type A personality, heart of gold. And he told me, he said, you know, in this mission station where you now live, after I was here for a few days, in his New York accent and style, he said something like, so I just took off my watch. I took off my watch and I threw it in the dresser drawer and I never looked at it again for three years. I just left it there because I was going to be driven nuts. 
<laughs> and that has to do with that cultural thing. Life, life is important. Relationships are important. Time spent with people rather than getting to the next project. And so this spiritual discipline or practice or however we want to frame that is like crucial. I found it to be the case even when I didn't understand some of the formalities of what spiritual disciplines were during my years in Africa, the most rewarding times came when I would listen not only to the Father, but to people mm. who I need to hear from. That is so good. Side note, just for sheer fun, your accent sounded like Donald Trump doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. <laughs> should, should I be complimented or something else? <laughs> no, it was, just, it, was, it was fun. <laughs> this, this is the part of not taking life too seriously. Exactly. You know, Jerry, I'm just so, so grateful for the time that, that you spent. And, you know, I want to end with, these three questions that I asked you last time. Um, but you can have a different answer this time. One of the, the first questions is, what area in life, past or present, do you struggle with the most in negative self-talk? Mm. The word inertia comes to my mind. Um, I think I've alluded to this a little bit. Um, in some ways earlier, um, I'm not that kind of type A personality, not a guy who's very naturally self-disciplined, being able to apply myself to tasks and see them through in a timely fashion has been a struggle. I think there may be some association with some undiagnosed depression issues. I'm not sure. There were a lot of emotional struggles that my mother had, and there were kind of self-destructive lifestyles that several of my family members had on both sides going back. And so God has been very gracious to me and gentle uh, through other people, through people that I have shared and asked for prayer or counsel. And so I've, I've found myself beginning to take Again, taking myself less seriously in terms of some of these challenges, challenges and allowing him to bring me to more of a healthy, disciplined kind of living in the area of that sort of thing. Yeah. What brings you peace? Peace for me is um, maybe among other things, knowing that I'm loved as I am with nothing to prove, nothing to earn, no accolades necessary behind my name, but that I belong to the Father through Jesus and am his forever. What's the best decision you've ever made? Learning, and I'm still at this, but deciding to learn to pay attention to the voice of God, sensing his presence and responding to that. I think of the call to serve him, whether domestically here in the United States 
or through our years in Africa or wherever that may be, those decisions of resetting my uh, radar sensors to hear his voice, so to speak, and respond well. Okay. This conversation has just, uh, it's been so rich. It's been full of laughter. It's been full of peace and calmness. And it's been full of a lot of wisdom. So Jerry, thank you so much for coming today to share with us the second book in your, in your series and for just the life that, that you've lived and the, the willingness that you are to share it with others, man. I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you for coming. What a pleasure for me, Evan. Thank you so much for inviting me. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. When I started this podcast, it was important for me to lead by example, that I wouldn't hide behind a fake mask acting like I've arrived and speaking from the mountaintop. My whole purpose was to be vulnerable about where I was, my failures, my struggles, and my successes, so that I could be a bridge, that I could be a gap in this process of showing people how to change in the areas of faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, and fun, because that's exactly where I'm at and what I'm doing. And I had a coach years ago, and he was the first coach I've ever had. And he did it for a very affordable rate because I couldn't afford anything more than what he offered me. But he told me this, Evan, someday you're going to get in a spot where you're going to be able to give back to others. And I want you to remember what I'm doing for you here and now that it's made affordable so that you can actually go through it. He goes, I believe in you and I trust that you'll do this. And so because of that, it resonated within me that at a certain point when I felt I've had enough hard knocks that I had something to offer other people, I would start a coaching program. And this is that. I am now starting a coaching program and I'm going to make it affordable because by the graces of someone else that helped me out when I was first starting my journey, I wanted to do the same for other people. So I'm going to offer a free 15-minute coaching phone call to anyone that wants it. You can go to the website, thewholepersonpodcast.com and sign up for that free coaching phone call. And if you're looking to have a longer extended coaching relationship outside of that first 15-minute phone call, I have the prices right up front. I'm open about it. And I'd be more than happy to see if we'd work well with one another and can help you reach and achieve the goals that you have in life. Guys, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the show.